This morning we will be continuing in the book of Matthew in the 22nd chapter in the very last section. And uh, as we prepare to get to that spot, just a reminder of where we've been uh, with the, the last several weeks. We had, uh, you know, Jesus, the triumphal entry, which was Jesus designating very clearly, he's the king. He's saying who he is. Uh, during the week, he cleanses the temple. Again, declaring himself as high priest. And obviously, during these, these times, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the political parties of the Hebrew people that were in control were not pleased with him. And so, they decided, uh, looking for an opportunity to nothing less than, than cause his teachings to be ineffective, meaning to, to bring him down somehow in his teaching, uh, looking for a way to, to make him look bad, to discredit him. And so we had the three questions that we went through over this last uh, few weeks. The question about taxes put forward by the Herodians. And the Herodians, again, uh, are those uh, Jewish leaders who supported the, the position that uh, they got along just fine with Rome. And uh, they figured, here's a question. If Jesus says pay the taxes, then uh, he's going to be upsetting uh, this group of people over here. If he says don't pay the taxes, he's going to be at odds with Rome. And so these were questions, by the way, that, that they debated all the time and never came to a firm conclusion on. And so, how to deal with this? Some, would, some of them would say they would rather go to prison than pay their taxes, and some did. Um, the next question that came to them was dealing with the resurrection, ironically put forward by the Sadducees who don't believe in it. And again, hoping to trip him up in some way as to putting out his answer that he would upset part of the group. And then the final one was, which is the greatest commandments? Here are all the commandments. Which one is the greatest? And he steps outside of the, the Decalogue, outside of the Ten Commandments, and goes and says that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind is the greatest commandment. And a second one that comes from that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so all three of these questions, as you read through it, you'll find... Uh, they, they were stumped. Uh, the, Jesus wasn't stumped. They were. They, they couldn't come back with a reply. They were, they, it's, they, they were amazed. Those who were hearing these questions were amazed and saying, wow, this is uh, just uh, uh, amazing teaching. He's got the right answers. He's got the answers. Uh, they can't put him in a, in a corner here. Finally, we come to a point where Jesus asks them a question. And... I like to see the, the table turned this way. And, and so that's where we pick up today. There's a fourth question in this series of questions, but it's asked by Jesus, not by the Jewish leaders. And it starts with verse 41 of chapter 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit 
calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is, this, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him. Not a word. Nor from that day did any more dare to ask him any more questions. In other words, they finally realized this is not the way it's going to work. We're not going to uh, trip him up. We're not going to entangle him somehow. We're not going to discredit him. Uh, if anything, we have uh, walked away looking the worst of, of this. And so uh, that was the end of it. They said, this is not the route we're going to take from here out. And so we look at this answer or this question that Jesus puts to him, though, puts to them. What do you think about the Christ? Uh, and uh, I think about this, and, and, and you recall some of the, the, another question that he put to his disciples is, what do the people say about who I am? And the disciples went through a list of possibilities uh, that, uh, you know, they were looking at him as, as a prophet, as, as, as uh, you know, but, but none of them looking at him as the Messiah. And he said, who do you say that I am? Speaking to the disciples specifically. And Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And so we understand that this is an important question. Who is the Christ? Who, you know, how do we know he's who he says he is? And what we need to see is, is that the Bible is all the way through the Old Testament pointing with, with different situations that would be necessary for the Christ to fulfill in order to be who he says he is. And we go back now especially and, and we look at the Old Testament and we see Scripture after Scripture after Scripture fulfilled in Jesus' lifetime. Everything from his birth to his death and to his resurrection. Even to the point of where he would be buried is determined in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53. He would be buried, he was to be buried in the, in, in, uh, uh, with the criminals, but instead he would be buried in the tomb of a rich man. As it turns out, he was buried in the tomb of, uh, set aside for, for Lazarus and, 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 and uh, or, um, I can't think of it. But anyway, he said, and, 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 and uh, he just, uh, uh, all of these things, so specific things. The fact that his hands would be pierced, his, his side would be pierced, his feet would be pierced. They would gamble, it literally talks about that they would gamble for his clothes at the foot of the cross. Before the cross was even a symbol of execution, those words were written. So all of these things Jesus fulfills, does, and, and, and all of them to point to who he is. They, 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 they narrow it down to where it comes down to only one could possibly fulfill this. The question that Jesus points to here is, he says, who is the Son of uh, whose son is the Christ? And you notice how quickly the, the Pharisees respond. They, they simply say, you know, oh, he's the, the son of David. Why would they say that? Well, again, scriptures 
multiple scriptures pointing to the reality that the king, uh, the, the, the Messiah, would come from the lineage of David. And so Jesus goes to a psalm, Psalm 110, which is a psalm that was considered messianic, dealing with the Messiah, and it points out about how David speaks about the Messiah. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David is saying, The Lord. And, and if you look in the Old Testament, you'll see that that's the Lord all capital letters which means the Lord Jehovah okay, is saying to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand. God is saying to His Son, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So He's saying, how can David be called, you know, be the, the, you know, how can you say Jesus is the son of David when David's calling Him His Lord? There is an answer to this, but they had never wrestled with it this way. They were so busy having, well, actually created a window by which they perceived the Messiah that he would come in a particular way that they had got so long held this, these views that, that they didn't see what was coming. They didn't see Jesus coming as he did. He wasn't the, he wasn't the Messiah they were expecting. As far as it went, their answer was correct. He is the son of David, but it was incomplete. What they couldn't grasp, because, and it was because, again, what were they expecting? They were expecting a man. A human man born of a woman and a man, just like any other man. They were expecting a man to come that would be the Messiah, who would be their deliverer. He'd be a prophet. He would be a number of other things. But they weren't looking at the supernatural. They weren't looking for the Son of God as their Messiah. And you've heard many times from, the, from, from our teachings here that, that what they were expecting was to be set free from the Romans and have their kingdom reestablished back to the fullness of the time of, of Solomon. And, and to be a, you know, to have the, the kingdom of God on earth was what they were looking for. And so, again, they had, this is what they were looking for. And so they were looking for one who would be a man, not a man and God at the same time. And he was fully man, by the way. We had, this is one of those awkward things to deal with in the Scripture. He was fully man. In Philippians chapter 2, uh, Paul wants to make it very clear that, that, that the, uh, this is the case. He says in Philippians chapter 2, have this mind, uh, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He was fully man, even to the point of death, death on the cross. And yet, John gives this description in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, in reference to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of the men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness does not overcome it. He is the Word. It tells us in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In fact, let's read that. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Jesus came to make known the Father. So, John is over here saying, Jesus is from the beginning. Things were created through Him. And Paul adds to that, that Jesus emptied Himself of that position and came to the earth as a man. So in that sense, he's fully God and fully man. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders of the Hebrew people, were not looking for this. They were looking for a military leader, Messiah, that would rid them of Rome and establish their kingdom. One more scripture out of John chapter 1. It says, He was in the world and the world was made through Him and yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. So, setting that picture again, Jesus comes to the Jews. What did they do? They rejected Him. They didn't receive Him. He wasn't meeting their expectations. He wasn't coming according to their plan. And I look at this and and think in terms of of how we look at it. Who do we say that Jesus is when we we say in reference to our own lives who He is? Do we call Him Messiah? We call Him Lord? We call Him King? And I was looking at this and thinking all the way through uh, college for me. I wasn't a believer at the time. Uh, I believed that there was a Christ. I believed that there was a Jesus. I was uh, one of those people who would say, here's the person who believes in a historical Jesus. He believes that there was a man who was uh, unique in his teaching, that he uh, was a good teacher, a good man, and quite candidly, he was upsetting the apple cart, and the people, the leadership wasn't happy with that, and so... Uh, they looked at this revolutionary. This is the way I perceived him at the time—a revolutionary—and uh, and put you know put him to death. 
They put him down. They put him to death. And of course, we're talking about the, the 60s and early 70s, which was the time of, of the you know, young people looking at everything and challenging everything as it was anyway. And so my challenge was, you know, I have no problem with him being a real person. Yeah, he could be a descendant of David. That works for me. I guess you would have said, could say almost that I was more in the Jewish leaders category than anything else. I was willing to accept him as a man, even descended from David. But this one who's fully God, that was in the beginning with, the, with God, all things created through him, no, that wasn't in my belief window. It was a while later that I came to understand that it's not Jesus as you want him, but Jesus as he is that had to come to grips with. I had to come to grips with. I had I was content with Jesus as I wanted him to be. He, you know, my Jesus, if you will, in my belief window. I didn't have to uh, go to church. I didn't have to read the Bible. I, you know, none of those things were part of 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 my belief system, and uh, I was perfectly content with that. And then God opens my eyes. And a series of events that would be as random as can possibly be, God opens my eyes. And the next thing you know, I'm looking at it and saying, okay, I believe that when John was writing, I believe that when... Luke was writing, I believe that when Matthew was writing, uh, when Paul is writing, that they believe what they're saying. But I don't know how to get there. And I started reading the Bible. I started studying the Word. I started actually to pray. Not so much as a believer, but just saying, hey God, if you're real, I want to know you. I mean, if you really are the, the God that these people are talking about, then I need to make a response. That's the point, by the way, that I was trying and I wanted to get to this morning. Is who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus requires a response. It doesn't have to be a yes, or it can be a no, but it's still a response. It requires he can't he doesn't leave you there hanging there kind of like, well, whatever. You can ignore it, but ignoring it is saying no to him. Requires a response. Jesus uses David's own words to show that he is more than a man. More than the son of David. Yes, he's from the lineage of David. Yes, he is the son of David. But he's also David's Lord. How can that be? Again, come back to he emptied himself. He came into this world. The one that was in the beginning with God in creation and all aspects of it. The one who left heaven and became flesh. Did all of this so that we might know him. But he did it with a purpose. That we might know who God is and before the foundation of the world, the plan that was put into effect to save us from our sins. So, again, David saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. By the way, sitting at my right hand 
is another picture that the Hebrews that were listening, the Pharisees that were listening, fully understood. Sitting at the right hand would be the one who was given authority, given charge. He was sitting there in an equal capacity with the Father. He was sitting at the right hand, but in an equal capacity. Therefore, he had the authority to judge. He therefore had the authority to ride in as king. He therefore had the authority to cleanse the temple. Jesus is not only the descendant of David, but he's telling him there is that he's also the Lord of heaven. He is the God-man. He sits at the right hand of God in a position of authority, co-equal with God. Psalm 110, again, recognized by the Jews even at that time as a messianic psalm, is... Uh, is to me one of the, the more fascinating psalms. Uh, I'm not going to spend uh, a lot of time with it, but you've, you've got to see some things. At least I, I probably will more open a, a, a context of, of thinking about some things rather than being able to answer the things that, I, that are put here. But let's, I want you to turn to Psalm 110. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your, of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of, the, of, of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn, and this, especially this verse, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath, meaning on judgment. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with, with corpses. He shall shatter uh, chiefs uh, over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. All of these dealing with the idea that He is... is in control. He is in authority. The Lord has said to my Lord, you're the one that's in charge. You're the one that's going to bring judgment. You're the one that's going to reign over the earth. All of these things imply here. But the one picture I think is interesting is just the side note. You are a priest forever under the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was not born to the lineage of the priesthood. Who are the priests? What 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 uh, yeah, Levites. No, I mean Le the Levites are the, are the priests, and uh, and 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 so it's saying that from a completely different source is going to come the priest that it's a priest forever. Again, knowing that the scribes and the the Pharisees, uh, the, the the scholars of the word at that time knew this psalm as messianic, you have to know that they knew this first. Maybe they didn't know for sure quite how to interpret it or how it would put, put it forth, but I'm just saying that Jesus chose this psalm not only to point out to his authority to, to rule, to, to say that he is the Lord, but also to show his, his position as high priest. Um, 
I don't know how many of you know the, the, the story that goes behind Melchizedek, but you have to go back into the book of Genesis uh, to, to deal with that story. But the, the reality is, is that, that Hebrews has a lot to say about Melchizedek and the priesthood, and that, that Jesus, you know, as the high priest forever, comes under the order of Melchizedek. Again, this is all contrary to what the Hebrew leaders want. And so, using a verse again that they're familiar with, remember last week how I emphasized, I hope I got that through, how familiar they were with the the verse, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, coming out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, a verse that would be part of what they would say, many of them, every single day. They were also familiar with this verse. And so Jesus, using Scripture that they're familiar with to answer their questions and or to to put questions to them, in a sense, and and they're coming back saying, we've never thought of any of these things in this way. And the people that are listening to him, you've got to remember, it's not just the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are around the temple, the other people that are listening to him, they're standing back and they're marveling, they're amazed. They're saying, we've never seen anybody who teaches like this before. The Pharisees can't challenge him. The Sadducees can't challenge him. The Herodians can't challenge him. He's he's above all of that. And they're beginning to see that. And they're marveling and they're amazed at what they're hearing and what they're seeing. Again, the New Testament teachings back this picture of Christ up as the the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I already read from you from John uh, chapter uh, 1, but we also were sharing uh, from Colossians this morning. And in the same book of uh, Colossians chapter 1, we see another picture of Jesus as uh, the one in charge, if you will. Starting with the 15th verse, it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Firstborn meaning the one with the right to all inheritance. Firstborn in that category. In other words, the firstborn is used as a symbol of who has the, the inheritance. And so it's saying he's the firstborn of all creation. He has the right to all the inheritance. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in everything He might be preeminent. What David was driving for in in Psalm 110, what Jesus is driving for in his teachings, is for them to grasp who he is. He is preeminent in all things. There isn't anything that Jesus isn't first in the sense of, 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 of authority. He has been given authority all over all things. He it even says. You know, the idea of, of, of going back to one Psalm 110, but the, the, all of your enemies will be made as your footstool. He is in charge. 
Jesus says himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's no other access to the throne of God but through Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Uh, the, uh, it's written that, that there is only one name under heaven by which a man can be saved. And it's referring to the name of Jesus. The Christ. The Son of God. God in the flesh. Preeminent over all things. The only way to heaven. completion of this section basically said that there's they were they, the, the, they, they had no way to answer him looking back at, at verse 46 the last verse it says and no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions notice how, the, how that's written they didn't dare to ask him any more questions what does that tell you about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, those who have been approaching him, trying to entangle and trap, uh, discredit him? They were intimidated by him now. The, the irony in the midst of this is that it didn't cause them to take a step back and say, maybe we need to reconsider. It drove them back meaning they weren't going to confront him anymore in this way, but they didn't reconsider what was on their belief window. They weren't willing to take down and, and say, okay, could, this, could these scriptures mean more than what we give them credit for? Could it mean more than what we thought they did? Is it possible by the way, I shouldn't say that that was a universal approach because many of the Pharisees and, 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 and other Jewish leaders actually did step back. And ultimately, many of them came to know Christ as Lord after the resurrection. So, I don't want to leave that impression that all of them are this way. But those in authority, Caiaphas and the others in authority, were saying, we cannot have this. This is not what we want. That's what it boiled down to. They weren't willing to look. And so I look at it and I say to myself, is there anything that I have held in, in Scripture, learned in Scripture, uh, that, that needs to be reassessed or reevaluated? Uh, is there something? And I realized, gosh, that's what I've been doing for 40 years. Things that I thought I had a firm grip on 30 years ago. When I started teaching in the Word of God, I'm finding that while many of the premises were, were solid, some of them weren't. Some of them I had to let go of and some of them I had to mature in. And, and we realize that being in a relationship with the Lord is a growing process. These people had it fixed. They knew the Lord before He came. They knew what He would be, what He would do, and what He would say. And if it wasn't that, if it didn't fit that, He was out. And that's exactly what happened. He came and they did not know him. 
His light was there and they chose the darkness. So what do we do with this? Jesus says He is God. He says He is here to save. How do we look at this? The Scriptures that probably helped me as much as any came out of Ephesians. There was a point where you, you know, in reading Scripture and, and trying to figure out who this Christ is, I realized what sin was. And as soon as I realized what sin was, I realized that what sin I had committed. And I think even people who are not believers in Christ can look at their lives and say, boy, there's a bunch of stuff I wish I'd never done. You know, this type of thing. But looking at things and seeing it with a new set of eyes. I was looking through a new picture, if you will, a new window in my belief system. And I realized that I was dead. And that's where Ephesians chapter 2 comes in for me. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the souls of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I was just part of the, 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 the world that was bopping along that was not interested in Christ. I recall... Kathy will probably remember having this professor in, in college as well. He started out one of his things on, in the history of Western civilization in commenting that when we got to the part of Christianity, he was going to, he was warning all those Bible-toting Christians ahead of time that he was really going to set them straight. And he was one of these people who just would, the, the, the Scripture would be, you know, he was caught in the flesh, he was caught in the passion of the world, he's caught in the things of the world. And what he was saying was that what I held to at that time, Jesus was just a man. But once you begin to realize, after you start to look, especially at the, uh, the Gospel of John and how John looked at it, you start to say, wait a minute, he's before all things, he's, how does all of this work? He is more than man, he's also Do I understand that? No. But do I believe it's a possibility for the first time in my life? Yes, and I realize I'm sitting here with all this trespass. I'm sitting here with all this sin. And I'm actually feeling guilty. We all lived in this condition at one point in time. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up from Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in His coming of ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace 
in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God opens our eyes because we're willing in that sense of we we don't get entrenched, we don't walk backwards and find ourselves gripped in what we want the Messiah to be. But instead, as He opens our eyes, opens our hearts and extends His grace to us, He creates in us the ability to see Christ as He is and what He wants to bring to us. And the reality that even though there's a wrath and a judgment, it's not because God is a policeman, but it is because man has chosen. But God, as He opens our eyes, opens us to His grace, He says, come to me. One other side note to this I want to share with you. Out of Ephesians chapter 1. Starting with, uh, oh, probably keep it in Paul's prayer that he gave. Uh, Go back to verse 15 of chapter 1. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. He's opened our eyes. That you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might? that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things, what what David said would come to pass, He put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him as head, over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Somebody put it to me, and, and, and I've never forgotten it, and not too long after I'd become a Christian and I'd heard the, this verse put in, in a teaching context. and it says, it says that all things have been put as a footstool underneath Christ's feet, and then, and then it goes on to talk about and they put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to be the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And they said, where are you, Bob? Where are you now? If Jesus Christ is your Savior, where are you? And I gave the very obvious question, answer. I'm under His feet. I'm the footstool. Thinking that that would be the right position to be in. And he said, oh no. 
He says, you're sitting at the right hand of God with Him. He says, you are the body. It says He is the head of the body which sits at the right hand. We're not the footstool. We are His church, His bride. We sit with Him. This is what Jesus came to share, what He wanted people to see. Pharisees, Sadducees, the Herodians, they weren't willing to rethink and reconsider. I just want to be sure today for yourself that are you at peace with your relationship with Christ? If Christ were to say to you, like He said to Peter, who do you say that I am? Are you confident that you can say, you are the, the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, you're my Savior. You're my Lord. Because that's what He came to bring us, to open our eyes to His glorious salvation. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. Every time we come to communion, we celebrate that. He is exactly who He said He was. He came into the flesh, emptied Himself, came into the flesh, became a man, even a servant of men, even to the point of death on the cross. That His body would be nailed to the cross, His blood poured out with the purpose of purchasing our salvation. Extending His grace to us. So as we share communion today, remember, Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who saves us, but also that we rest in His resurrection, seated at the right hand of God, and as believers, we are part of that. And uh, just how awesome... Christ is. I, I again look at the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the fact that they were missing this. But we have it here before us today to see, to look at, to think about, and then to ask for ourselves where we fit into that. Maybe communion is a good time for that. Ask the ushers to come forward to pass out the communion. Ask that you would all be, uh, hold the communion until we're all served and we'll share it together. Oh. Uh-huh.
What will be a ways yet in our study in the book of Matthew, but just a short time after this, Jesus sharing the the Last Supper with His disciples. And wanting to leave them and the body, the church, all who would believe after them. A picture, if you will, of what Jesus has done for us that we could use to draw us close together and close to Him. What He chose was the, the symbols that were at that meal that He you know, used to, to do what we share today as, as communion or the Lord's table. Taking the bread at that meal. After giving thanks to the Father for the bread, He broke it. And He gave it to His disciples. And He said, this is My body broken for you. Take, eat. Remember, it's of me. Taking the cup of blessing and giving it a great significance as a picture of His blood being poured out for us. That as often as we would share this cup and drink it together, that we would do so remembering He poured out His blood to purchase the covenant of grace that we can rest in that brings us our salvation. And He did this, He, he said, uh, to, to purchase our, co- our salvation, but He did it in such a way as to uh, give us that... Uh, I can't think of it. It was just drawing away from me. There we go. Um, something that he was longing to share again with us at the marriage feast. He says, I'm not going to do this again. He says, I want you to do this as often as you gather together. But I won't do this again until we are all together at the marriage feast. And so he asked us to do this in remembrance of him. Father, we thank you that we can come this morning knowing that the message that You bring us through Your Word is that of grace, mercy, desire to open our eyes to Your love, Your your wonderful, wonderful love. We ask, Lord, that You would go with us, cause us to rest with confidence in our salvation, knowing that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, has purchased for us something that cannot be taken away. And we thank You in Jesus' name.
Amen. Would you stand as we close? Uh, we've got refreshments in the back to share if you have time to visit for a little while. And again, Lord bless. Thank you for being here this morning.